Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. Lauren Marks here with Dave Dollahite. We're delighted to have the chance to talk through another chapter from our Strengths and Diverse Families of Faith book. Today we're going to be visiting Muslim families. Our chapter is entitled Answering to Allah, Relational Unity Among American Muslim Families. And this particular chapter, as with most of the chapters in this book, were lead authored by two outstanding graduate students. Lee Essig and Melanie Lott, who have since completed our program and moved on to bigger and better things. Wonderful people were wonderful graduate students when they were with us. We're also joined on this chapter by Mona Abuzina, who is a professor at UMass Boston, a highly respected colleague of ours, and a practicing Muslim herself, as well as Zara Al-Ghafli, a former PhD student of mine at LSU, who is a professor and clinician from Dammam, Saudi Arabia, also herself a practicing Muslim. So we're fortunate, as with many of these chapters, to have insider, scholar, co-authors to help us out. In terms of overview, just very quickly, the words Muslim and Islam come from the same root meaning peace or submission. Islam is the name of the religion, and a Muslim, which literally means one who submits, is an adherent of that religion. According to a recent Pew study, it's estimated that there are about 3.3 million Muslims that live in the United States, about 1% of the total population. But some experts have projected that this figure may double roughly over the next three decades or so. So obviously, religious tension is a part of our world. It has been a part of our world for decades, generations, millennia. The, the nature of that conflict might change. The, the reasons for conflict might change. The outcomes might change. But unfortunately, religious tension has been with us for a long, long time. So we part of what we're doing in this book is trying to increase understanding across various faiths to help because we believe that when people learn and come to understand other faiths and other peoples of other faith, uh, that can foster increased understanding and respect and perhaps even love. And in today's culture, as there's quite a bit of tension across political and racial and ethnic and ideological groups, unfortunately, there is also a lot of misunderstanding of people across groups, and perhaps no group in America is less misunderstood and therefore has negative feelings toward as Muslims. Pew Research indicates that Islam is the least popular religion in America, and our own faith, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or Mormons, is not too much uh, less misliked than that faith. So we, we know what it's like to be a member of a, a misunderstood and disliked religious minority. And so in this chapter, we tried to listen to the voices of practicing Muslim husbands, wives, and youth 
who talked about their faith and help us understand how their faith influences their efforts to be good husbands, wives, parents, and children. With all the negative portrayals in the media where Islam and terrorism are often linked, even though it's a small proportion of Muslims who believe in practicing terrorist activity, nonetheless, much media portrays Islam and terrorism as one and the same. And so there are a lot of misunderstandings and stereotypes about Muslims that are supplied or reinforced in the media. And it's therefore no surprise that many U.S. Muslims feel a lack of safety and they face difficulties associated with being an adherent of a disliked religion. So we hope that listening to the voices of Muslim Americans, most of whom are immigrants to the United States, some of whom are converts to Islam and born and raised in the U.S., will share quotes from both. We hope that listening to the voices of individual Muslims talk about their faith might help to foster authentic understanding and respect. Although Islam, numerically at least, is the second largest faith in the world and Muslims are a rapidly growing religious minority in the United States, Muslims are understudied and, as you said, Dave, and often a misunderstood group, leading us to a dire need for research that examines carefully Muslim families. Sadly, in the 12 years following the 9-11 tragedy, hate crimes against Muslims reportedly increased 16-fold, 1,600% from pre-9-11 levels in both the United States and in Canada. It, of course, is one of our aims and hopes of uh, the American Families of Faith Research Project that will be able to give better insight to how families live out different faiths. Also mention quickly a quote from the American novelist Thomas Berger, who said, no matter what side of the argument you are on, you always find people on your side that you wish were on the other. And while that's true with arguments, I think that any religious person would admit that that holds with religion as well. For any religious group, there are those that you are affiliated with by name, where you just shake your head and wish that you weren't. And certainly that is true for members of our own faith. It's true for Muslims. I will mention just this past week, we have a BYU Jerusalem Center where a select group of students gets to go over and spend time a full semester over in Jerusalem where they're immersed in a religious capital, par excellence, with Islam, Judaism, Christianity, the Dome of the Rock, etc. And just this week, I had a student who had that experience, a BYU student, tell me that they were overwhelmed with the kindness that they were shown by Muslims during their semester abroad. I've similarly heard many BYU students who've served missions, full-time missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints around the, the world indicate that they came across Muslim families as missionaries who treated them with dignity and respect that was rare and pleasant to find, even though it's very rare uh, for conversions to take place either way between Muslims and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The bottom line is that many of our students here have had very positive 
tolerant interactions with members of that faith community. And we're delighted to have the chance to, to convey with more depth some of our own experiences interviewing these families in their homes. In terms of social science, has been a modest recent increase in research, studying and focusing on Muslims, but there's still a fairly conspicuous hole and lack compared with research that examines a variety of Christian families. Even among the research that's been done, many of the studies tend to focus on Islam as an ethnicity or as a culture instead of as a lived religion. And while there certainly is often overlap, those are different things. Muslim culture, which is often confounded with Arab culture, and the faith of Islam with its five pillars. Studies looking at outcomes for highly religious Muslims have found some associations between higher levels of religiosity among Muslims with increases or correlates in mental health and physical health, as well as in happiness and and self-reported well-being, findings that hold very well with those of other denominations and world faiths, as cataloged, for example, in Harold Koenig's and colleagues' Handbook of Religion and Health. While these findings add uh, quite a bit to the literature on outcomes for religious Muslims, scholars, including ourselves, have noticed that most of these studies have focused on individual-level outcomes and not on familial outcomes, marital relationships, parenting relationships, and that's where we kind of step in and find most interest. Yeah, the social sciences do tend to focus more on individuals and on social institutions and less on families. And we, as family scholars, tend to emphasize more on what goes on between family members inside home. So our focus tends to be on that kind of place in the middle between individuals and societies. That's the home and family. Over the past several years, some scholars, including some of our own colleagues in the American Families of Faith Project, have done some interesting research focusing on Islam, and we've really enjoyed having the chance to participate with our colleagues on that. For example, Laughley and colleagues noted that their participants discussed how religion helped them, gave them increased marital stability, increased security and happiness, and sort of provided a kind of a manual for how to live in their homes and families by outlining roles and responsibilities. Other research found that Muslim families reported that certain religious practices, such as the month-long fast in Ramadan or daily prayer or salat, were also unifying and helped to reduce conflict in family life. Those Muslims that we've interviewed also talked about how prayer, again, salat in Arabic, facilitated opportunities for their families to spend more time together, just kind of gave a daily ritual for them to engage with each other in a meaningful way. Many parents talked about how they felt that they had a responsibility to teach their children to pray in the Muslim way and to help their children build a foundation for religious devotion. And all these studies indicate that for some Muslim families, religious beliefs and practices are really important to them. In our study, we focused on in-depth qualitative interviews often conducted in the homes of these families with 25 Muslim families a total of 56 individuals in six of the families. We also interviewed some youth. 
Six of the couples were Shia Muslims and 19 were Sunni Muslims, the two major branches of Islam. The sample was quite diverse in that uh, the age of the parents we interviewed ranged from the early 30s or so up to the, the early 60s. And it also included multiple races and ethnicities representing numerous nations of origin, including several from Africa and portions of Arabia or the Arabic Peninsula. We've got participants from Iraq, Jordan, Palestine. We also had numerous participants from various countries in both Eastern and Western Europe. We had East Indian and Iranian participants as well, making this our, in terms of branches of the American Families of Faith Project, this was our most geographically diverse sample in terms of origin. Also, socioeconomic status and educational levels ranged widely from just some high school all the way up to PhD or terminal degrees. And you're talking about the diversity of the sample that reminds me of the mosques that I've attended are kind of United Nations of amazing diversity of culture and, and language and clothing and food. And I've really enjoyed the national and, uh, and racial and ethnic and linguistic diversity that's present in most mosques in the United States, at least the ones that I've been to. So now we'll talk a little bit about the findings. And as is the case in most of our eight chapters, which focus on different religious ethnic communities, we focus on three domains. One is kind of general life strengths of what does faith bring to people that sort of help them in general. And then we talk about marital strengths and then about parenting strengths. So we'll start in the domain of life strengths. Many of the Muslim participants that we interviewed talked about the fact that many aspects of their lives, their attitudes, and their behaviors were implicitly or explicitly related to their Islamic faith. So we'll talk about the first theme, which we called active religion. A recurring theme was that many of the folks we talked with stressed how important it was to live what they actually believed and taught to their children. Over the course of these interviews, a lot of Muslims mentioned just how important it was to use that very popular phrase, to walk the walk of their faith, in terms of in their relationships, in with their children, in terms of interacting with other people, with neighbors and, and strangers, to interact with kindness and respect. And because many of our respondents or participants came from various other countries, English was not the first language for many of those that we interviewed. And so we will read the quotes and you know, you'll note that there's these lovely ways of expressing things in English that are beautiful and sweet in terms of expressions of deep beliefs and, and deep desires to try to live the faith. A bond, a Muslim husband and father, spoke of how his faith helped him deal with others with respect. And Throughout the broadcast, as with others that we've done, we strive to share participant voices with you verbatim. Again, back to Aban, he said, I think faith also helps in terms of how I deal with other people. You think of them as servants of God, as being human. So you respect them for being human. And then you forgive them if they do things that you don't think they should be doing because you value them as human beings, and you pray for them too. 
Another participant said, As Muslims, religion is not separate from the way you live your life. Everything you do in your life should be religious. The way you behave with people is a part of your religion. Even the way you drive your car is part of your religion. That's kind of a scary thought for me sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty non-religious sometimes when I'm driving, apparently. Babe? So the second theme in this general domain of life strengths, uh, we call it sanctifying trials. Uh, many participants frequently discussed how their Islamic faith provided meaning for them uh, when they were being challenged or tried in, in life. Many express the idea that Allah, and by the way, Allah is simply the Arabic word for God. The God that Muslims worship is the same God that is worshipped by prophets in the Bible. Uh, the Quran is filled with stories of individuals from the Bible. And Muslims believe that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Adam, Moses, Jesus is the same God whose voice speaks in the Quran. Many express the idea that Allah orchestrates trials in beneficial ways. This belief that life tests are sort of part of Allah's plan, which is a very deep belief that what happens happens because Allah wills it to happen. This encouraged individuals during their trials. It fostered hope for them. It gave them meaning for past difficulties. For example, Rashid, when asked if he felt that God had directly influenced his family, said, now, when we look back, there are certain things in our life we feel that was really a great mercy of Allah. Losing that job, getting out of that life, and knowing that our life was structured was a great blessing. We're very thankful it happened. We see He had prepared it. So today, when challenges come to us, we look at it as a model. Look at that time. We had a challenge. and We had a hard time. But that hard time is really a journey to a beautiful life that is going to come after it. So if we get a challenge today, we are very confident that God is working behind it. We believe that trials have purpose and that Allah works through trials to create something beautiful. And that belief has helped this family express gratitude for hard experiences. Additionally, many others shared their belief that Allah was involved in their daily struggles and that he would provide them help and support. Faizia, a mother and wife, explained, For example, in my school, if I had a bad exam or a bad grade, I feel sorry, but then I think, okay, this is a test for me and I have to be patient. It gives me courage to move on and not to be too sad or be too depressed about it. It makes it easier. My belief makes it easier to live during the times of obstacles and troubles. And afterwards, when I decide to act that way, I feel more comfortable, more relieved, and I feel God is beside me and is encouraging me and supporting me. Now we'll shift from a general domain of life strengths to focusing on marital strengths. And there were a number of uh, marital strengths that the wives and husbands in our study mentioned. One of them centered around the theme of marital unity. Many of the couples expressed that Islam gave them a shared vision and purpose that helped unite them. When asked if Islam influenced his relationship with his spouse, a husband named Hafid said, We have a common vision. I think that vision has helped us a lot. We know what we want to do, and Islam is something we share. 
and we committed to it, and both of us were ready to do whatever it takes. So the light is clear to us. Incidentally, this theme of a common shared vision in shared faith marriages is something that came up across all of the major faiths that we included in our broader study and is a, of central importance to most of the marriages with whom we spoke. Another participant said, Sometimes the law brings certain situations where the family is tested, and many times we find the only solution is through faith. Even if something happens which is unpleasant, whether it's a loss, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a death, the faith that we have, our common faith, strengthens us through those tests. Again, as you were saying, Dave, the reference to life being a test, an exam, uh, recurs. Again, the shared faith as these tests arise was reported by, by most of the Muslim families that we met as a source of strength during trials and challenges that came their way. And many framed those tests as part of Allah's plan. We'll now shift to the second theme uh, in the domain of marital strengths, and that was around resolving marital conflict. In addition to discussing marital unity, as many couples did, and, and how their faith strengthened their unity, we also asked about if religion made a difference in helping them avoid or resolve marital conflict. And a number of families talked about ways that their beliefs helped them to prevent conflict, and, and if they'd experienced conflict, help them to deal with it. One belief that was referenced was unnecessary across-gender interactions. A Halima, a wife, said, in our religion, we don't encourage men and women mixing too much without having the wife between them. This type of expectation reduces a lot of marital conflicts. And in Islam, for example, in the worship, Men and women worship separately, and it's not about hierarchy. It's about not distracting each other, and it's about being able to focus on the prayers. And the whole idea of kind of a separation of men and women is a part of Islam that many Muslims will say helps to maintain a sense of identity, a sense of modesty, a sense of fidelity in marriage. They talk about the trust that they feel knowing that their spouse is not hanging around with people of the opposite sex. Another participant noted, quote, differences are always there and disagreements are unavoidable. So in these cases, Islam was reportedly helpful in some ways. Several couples explained how religious practices and Sharia, which is Islamic law regarding divorce, can help couples try to work through moderate to serious conflicts before a final decision to end the relationship through divorce. Mahdi, a husband, explained about divorce. In Islam, if a couple want to get divorced, they have to pass through three stages. First, they have to talk between themselves and to understand what the problem is. Then, if they really pass this stage and get to where they cannot talk between themselves, they have to invoke family members to come and gather both of them and try to solve the problem. If that doesn't work, then they call a person known in society and continue trying to solve it. Then, if not, a divorce will be the solution. Another theme addressed how prescribed Islamic roles and responsibilities helped to mend disunity during times of conflict. 
For example, when asked if his religion helped him avoid or reduce marital conflict, Sabir said, In a conflict resolution, I do introspection and look at where I am outside of my rights, roles, and responsibilities. That helps in conflict resolution. Reportedly, understanding what one's roles were helped some participants recognize that when there's something he or she uh, needed to do to change, to make the marriage better. Additionally, remembering the responsibilities that they had to one another as spouses helped several to move past disagreements. And the Quran has a number of verses which spell out specific responsibilities between husbands and wives. And it was interesting how often in the interviews that I did, uh, I would ask the question and the person would often quote the Quran or one of the hadith of Muhammad, one of his sayings or actions, they would first quote it in Arabic, then they would translate that into English, and then and only then would they give their own sort of take on that or their own interpretation. So I found it, you know, we talked about uh, when we were discussing the Asian Christian families that we interviewed, how precise many Asian Christians were in quoting scripture directly as a source for their responses. I saw the same thing with Muslim families, and in the case of not all, but a number, would first quote the Quran in Arabic and then do a translation. In other words, they wanted to get back to the source because they believe the Quran in Arabic is the Word of God, and they wanted to ground their ideas and their responses in that sacred text. In terms of marital strengths, and we, we mentioned there were many mentioned by our Muslim couples, a second marital strength zeroed in on forgiving and forgiveness. When conflicts in marriage arose, Muslim couples talked about how their beliefs helped them to move on and to resolve conflict through forgiving and forgiveness. One theme expressed in the interviews was that their belief that marriage was a gift from Allah helped couples to let go of problems and to forgive. A husband named Yusuf expressed, how we treat each other in the marriage is witnessed by Allah. When you get into arguments or you have a fight, you must always remember the favor that Allah has given you in your spouse and the blessing they are. Therefore, you try to forgive more. And also, if in a weak moment you have wronged them by a harsh word, you ask their forgiveness and you ask Allah's forgiveness over it. Many of the Muslim couples mentioned how their belief in and submission to Allah helped them to see what they called a bigger picture and allowed them to let go of smaller issues. A husband named Dawood explained, Each time you have some problem, God has given some guidelines for you to submit to, to ignore little things and to look at the big picture. Forgiveness was sometimes talked about as a form of devotion. When spouses forgave one another, not only was it helpful for their relationship, it was, in their view, a way to honor Allah. And this belief was reportedly a powerful catalyst for some of the couples. One spouse connected forgiveness closely with the Creator as follows. She said, When there is a conflict... It's always helpful to remember to bring yourself down and let it blow over. You can remind yourself, I'm doing it for the sake of the Creator. And 
if that means lowering yourself, we lower ourselves for the sake of the Creator. Even if you are convinced that you were right, let it pass. Things like that help. We turn now from marital strengths to parenting strengths mentioned by our participants. Your quoting Yusuf reminded me of the great 70s and 80s rock legend Cat Stevens, who converted to Islam and changed his name to Yusuf Islam, and for many years stayed out of the public eye. You know, he's sort of at the peak of his rock fame and fortune. He just became very focused on his faith. And in more recent years, he's begun coming out and performing some of his great songs like Peace Train and mm. such. Anyway, so we'll now talk about some parenting strengths. The first one we organized under the theme of parental instruction. Now, one value that was repeatedly emphasized by Muslim parents was the importance that they placed on teaching their children how to live the teachings of Islam by teaching as an authentic example as a parent. One father, Ayub, when asked what it meant to be a good father, said, Teaching by example is the most important thing. You cannot expect your child to do something that is opposite of what you do. If they see you do certain things, they will do them. A mother named Angie, who herself was an adult convert to Islam, similarly expressed her view that, quote, In terms of religion, it doesn't matter how much the father talks to the children. The children will learn from what the father does. If my children see my husband go to the mosque every night for prayer, which he does, he is setting an example. I don't have to teach it. They are seeing it. Yeah, this kind of idea prevalent in our Muslim families is another that spilled over into all families of faith. What we discovered was the most frequently and profoundly mentioned religious practice was not, for example, prayer or scripture study or church attendance. It was practicing what you preach, which, of course, spills across all of those practices that I just mentioned that held strong for these Muslim families. Some parents emphasized, in fact, that they would rather educate their children about the deeper and underlying purposes, reasons, and meanings rather than forcing or policing their children to behave in certain ways without truly educating them. One principle noted by a mother named Pakiza, whose 11-year-old daughter was invited to go see her friend's rock band perform, shared the following narrative. Pakiza said, we had to say no. And she, our daughter, was a little upset at first because she did not get to see her friend and support them. She wanted to be able to support them, but we explained I understand you want to support your friend, and that is great. It is great to support your friend, but also you must look at other things. Somebody sees a Muslim girl there. They will think it is okay for Muslims to do this. So you are not only representing your religion, but you also have to understand that there are certain things that you can and can't do because Allah has set these priorities and these guidelines, and there are reasons for them. So, I think once children have this understanding, it is easier for them to hear no. In some of the youth interviews, some of our Muslim youth talked about the respect that they had for their parents, and it seemed from their reports that uh, not only was this a parent report, 
but many of the Muslim parents did a fine job talking about reasons and purposes behind decisions and not just taking an authoritarian or because I said so kind of approach in trying to instill their faith and issues of discipline and boundaries with their children. Cultivating loving relationships with children appeared to be an underlying foundation in teaching and understanding and in developing parent-child unity. One father we interviewed said, I believe that to have a good influence on my child, I have to spend time with him and spending quality time with him. That makes them love you. And if they love you, they will listen to you. This kind of tender statement focusing on shared time and love resonated across several of the interviews. Again, challenging some of the more authoritarian stereotypes that sometimes prevail regarding this culture and faith. Even so, even though there were some warm parent-child relationships that we observed, of course, as there was with marriage, there were conflicts and problems that arose between parents and children, and that's where we turn our attention in the final theme. So the second theme in the parenting strengths domain was resolving parent-child conflict. A number of participants mentioned that aspects of their religious practices or beliefs help them to avoid or resolve conflicts in their parent-child relationship. For example, Noor spoke of her role as a mother and her responsibility to help her children with their problems. She said, one of the most important things for me to do is nurture my children, to make sure that any problems I have, I have to help resolve. If I'm the one, I'm the one that bonds with the children. A daughter, Miriam, a 17-year-old daughter, she spoke about her own roles and responsibilities and how Islam fostered respect among family members. She said, in Islam, there are rights and duties upon the parents to the child and upon the child to the parent. And, you know, my rights and duties are that I have to respect my parents. This was common in the Muslim families that I interviewed. This type of a statement was made by a number of the youth who I interviewed, who, as was the case across, you know, I interviewed youth from many faiths, and it was a common theme that they referred to sacred beliefs, practices, obligations that they had as Muslims, as Jews, as you know, whatever their faith was, that led them to believe that they needed to respect their parents and not lie to their parents and so forth. Respect was also given to the children. A number of Muslim parents talked about how their role was to help guide their children and to be kind and caring toward their children and not be sort of pushing or bossing. A husband and father named Yusuf explained how these roles promoted both purpose and direction in conflict avoidance and conflict resolution. He said, Shura is mutual consultation for which there are injunctions in the Quran and in the Prophet's teachings or uh, hadith that the husband or the father is not a dictator. The decisions in the family should be made with consultation, including your children. It may be overstated to call this a pure democratic model, but certainly this consultation idea with children was mentioned repeatedly. Later in our interview with him, Yusuf offered some more detailed information on this process of shura that he referenced. He said, Everybody feels that they are a partner in it. 
and they have a chance to voice the positives and the negatives. That also helps avoid a lot of conflict because people don't feel that they have a voice. Again, this nod to hearing all voices seemed quite important to some of the Muslim families. Aisha, a Muslim mother, but from a different family, further explained, you're allowed to speak. And she's speaking primarily of children here. You are allowed to speak, but just remember who you're speaking to and how you do it. It's the same thing I've brought to my children, because we believe in respect. Miriam, Aisha's daughter, added that first, there's the mutual thing that I respect them. And second, they are merciful upon me and they guide me. And because of this two-way law, I have a peaceful relationship with them. And there's a lot of understanding. Yeah, and as you said earlier, this sort of mutual respect that's referenced shouldn't be overstated and sort of using the term like egalitarian you know, relationships between parents and children. Because in fact, there is a hierarchy that exists within Shura and the husband is the head of the family and the parents um, are responsible to teach their children and children are responsible to be respectful and deferent to their parents. So it's not so much egalitarian as it is a focus on justice, respect, and clear roles. Even so, a lot of the Muslim parents that we interviewed did talk a bit, quite a bit, about being responsive to their children's needs. And they talked about the value of taking time to try to understand their children and their needs, both you know, kind of in general life, also uh, during times of conflict. So one parent emphasized the importance of, quote, being constantly alert with them and close to them and understanding what they're going through and being, you know, understanding of them. It is important to be in touch so that they don't think, well, my parents grew up in a different place, different generation. They don't know. We must keep up with them, which means talking the way they do on their level. Some parents discussed how understanding their children and trying to develop a close relationship with them also fosters understanding and respect from children for their parents. This respect was cultivated in both directions as parents created an environment where their children's opinions were respected. For example, Aisha spoke of her open dialogue with her children. She said, we talk a lot. We have very in-depth conversations because they're verbal. They have their opinions and we've always told them, you can always say what you need to say but just say it with the right tone. So they're allowed to express themselves. Even if they disagree with us, we don't have a problem with that. And there is a hierarchy and a firm structure in both Sharia, Islamic law, and Shura, this collaborative idea where all voices are heard. But uh, as in any faith, there's significant variation in how the religion was lived out across families. For many of the families that we interviewed, and typically the interviews were in their homes, what we witnessed was admirable, and for me, even inspired some holy envy. Many of our observations and interviews contrasted, uh, sometimes pretty sharply, with common conceptions and often misconceptions in America of Islam and Muslims. As opposed to uh, unchallenged patriarchal superiority, kind of authoritarian model with little spousal or familial participation and in family issues, 
our interviews and data from mothers and fathers and children explain that per Shura, that fathers are expected, based on the teachings of the Quran and, and Sharia, to consult with family members. Women talked about discussion in their marriages, and children discussed how their opinions were often heard as they often conferred with their parents on different family issues, including conflict. So we studied, as we did with all the faith communities from which we did interviews, we explored strengths, and in this case, how Islam can promote strengths that might help people in their personal life, in their marital relationships, in their parental and family context. And often, as we talked about at the beginning, media representations of the Islamic faith are pretty heavily stereotyped, and they make it quite easy for those who don't really understand, don't know Muslim individuals and haven't had a chance to spend time with Muslim families, it makes it too easy to misattribute unrepresentative and extremist behaviors and attitudes that some Muslims have to all Muslim adherents. And we think it's really important to try to understand, to go beyond stereotypes, to go beyond generalities and to get to know individuals and ideally have a chance to know someone well enough to understand their strengths and their weaknesses, their diversities within any faith community. All religions have quite a range of ways of understanding that faith and living that faith, and we want to make sure that we don't judge an entire faith based on the actions of a few people at the extreme ends of that faith. According to a Muslim philosopher, Baba Diom, he said, with deep understanding comes love and authentic respect. And we certainly had that experience coming to know and spend time with Muslim families that we interviewed and whose interview transcripts we have read many times over the years. We're very grateful to them for their generous gift of their time, inviting us into their homes, telling us their stories as we like to say, letting us onto their sacred ground so that we could try to understand them better. And as we think about what we've learned from these 25 Muslim families and couples and their kids, we certainly found some of that authentic respect uh, that Baba Diyum promised could come to those who are willing to invest an effort at deep understanding. You know, Dave, it strikes me that there may be some listening to the podcast, you'd say, aren't you painting a rather rosy picture in some ways? And in short, for those not familiar with our broader American Families of Faith project, which includes nearly 300 diverse families from all over the country and across several religious traditions, yes, at one level, it is rosy in the sense that we strived intentionally to find and to interview the strongest families in terms of their relationships and faith that we, we could find. True for our Muslim families, true for all the families across different faith traditions that we interviewed. In the case of our Muslim families, our, our typical practice was to meet with the imam, come through the front door, so to speak. We often worshipped and were welcomed at services in the masjid or, or mosque where we were visiting. And then the imam would refer us to exemplary families within that faith community. So yes, 
the picture may be called a little bit rosy, but we intentionally wanted folks who'd been married for 20 or more years, where both the wife and husband reported that they had a happy and a strong marriage, to zero in on strengths instead of pathologies, which tends to be the trend of most social science to look at weaknesses. Our focus is quite a bit different, and that should be borne in mind, but we view that as a strength, not a weakness. The families that we interviewed, the Muslim families, claim more than half a dozen nations as their countries of nativity. And as we mentioned earlier, this is the most diverse international sample among the branches of the American Families of Faith Project. This is a rapidly expanding faith and is growing global force. For some, this thought yields some fear. Our experience has been that many of the families who shared their homes and stories with us were of a quality of character that any nation might welcome, the kind of family you would like to have live next door to you or in your community. The relationships were structured and somewhat hierarchical, but they tended to be strong and far more warm than typical media presentations make them appear to be, both at the marital and parental level. One vital issue that we didn't address in depth in this podcast is the shared religious devotion and unity and celebration that tend to surround the month-long fast of Ramadan. Ramadan elicited a joy, even in ebullience, from Muslims of various ages, ranging from youth we interviewed all the way up to uh, some of the older parents. We may circle back to this, but we witnessed Ramadan firsthand as invited guests as well as via participants' description. So we got to have firsthand experience there. The meaning and excitement that tends to surround Ramadan, this faith-based sacrifice and celebration, was truly unique in scope. And the discipline of that month-long fast based on the lunar calendar that rotates slowly around the year is supplemented by zakat, a charitable offering of 2.5% of one's wealth as an effort designed to relieve the suffering of the poor, whose involuntary fast is constant and unending. Ramadan and zakat are practices without precise parallel among the faiths that we've studied. I mean, indeed, if you took that level of generosity, and as with any faith, there are different levels of devotion and obedience, but if that level of generosity were practiced not just by all Muslims, but by all privileged members of the human family, world hunger would be eradicated in fairly short order. It's a thought that for me yields quite a bit of hope. And this lived principle of zakat may be more than anything else with Islam certainly stimulates within me a, a sense of deep respect and holy envy and a hope for a better world. So, Lauren, you're talking about the fact that we had a chance to not only be in homes of uh, Muslim families, we also had a chance to attend services, as we did with all of the faiths that we talked with. We tried to attend services, read their sacred texts, talk with their religious leaders, and I'm reminded of some of my own experiences in attending the masjid or the mosque. The first time I went to interview a Muslim family and the imam, 
I had about an hour drive, and during that drive, I was listening to a tape that was discussing Muslim religious practices, and one of them was the washings or the ablutions that are done before prayer. And I found that very interesting. It was kind of fascinating set of practices that are done to prepare a person to approach Allah in prayer. The first time I went to a mosque, I interviewed a wonderful family who had themselves gone on the Hajj twice as a family. And we, we tend to think of individuals going on the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca, practicing a number of very sacred practices there in Mecca that were initiated by Muhammad and are expected of all Muslims who can afford to go on the Hajj and who are physically able. Anyway, this family that I interviewed spoke about a number of these kinds of practices that we've been talking about and discussed their going to the Hajj. Then we went for prayer. They invited me into the mosque for the prayer. And as I try to do in, in all cases, I try to be as focused and attentive to what's happening. I try to participate where I feel comfortable doing so. And in this case, I sat in the back of the mosque and you know, really enjoyed the services. It's a powerful part of Muslim practice when communal prayer occurs that people line up in very straight lines and they stand shoulder to shoulder and they all face Mecca. So they're all facing the same direction. Their actions are in harmony as they bow, as they prostrate, as they place their forehead on the ground multiple times. So what, what they're doing with their bodies, what they're saying is in beautiful harmony. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are people from all over the world, all different kinds of cultural and national backgrounds that are all you know, facing the same direction, praying to the same God, saying the same words. It was a, it was a beautiful and powerful thing. In my case, I made a pretty serious mistake, which I'll offer for the benefit of any of our listeners who might themselves decide to go to a mosque and be there when prayers are offered. I was in the back of the room, and when the main prayers were ended and the great majority of people left to go downstairs for a luncheon that was being offered, there were just a few people there who had arrived a little bit later than others and hadn't had a chance to say their personal prayers before the communal prayers. And so they were doing so. And I made a kind of a straight line from the back corner of the room to the front corner, you know, the diagonal front corner of the room. And I walked in front of this man who was praying. And he reached out and put his arm out and stopped me and kind of moved me around behind him. Mm -hmm. And I then, you know, I apologized and, and I walked to where there were some men by the door and they said, oh, yes, you, you shouldn't walk in between someone and, uh, you know, the, where they're praying. That would have been blasphemous had he continued praying while you were walking in front of him. And so with grace and, and tolerance, they helped me to understand that I had not understood something. Uh, you know, looking back, I, I should have thought more clearly about what I was doing. That was just clearly my bad. Then I went down, was invited down to the luncheon. You know, foods from all over the world were served. It was an amazing feast. And everybody was paying $5 to help defer the cost of this. And I, of course, reached into my pocket to get my wallet, pulled out my wallet. And the men around me um, stopped me and said, no, no, you may not pay. It is our treat. Please put your wallet back in your pocket. And so I enjoyed their great hospitality also reminds me of a time in another state 
where I went to a mosque and interviewed the imam. And as you know, we, we do, we spend about an hour with the religious leader, hearing their perspective and asking them questions about how their faith influences marriage and family life. And when the interview was concluded and we had a, you know, a lovely conversation, I asked the imam if he would allow me to interview families in his congregation. And he said, I would be happy to do that. Here is a list of all the families in my congregation. You are welcome to call any of them. He said, however, I don't think that any of them will actually talk with you. And I said, really, why not? Uh, he said, well, because this mosque has been infiltrated by the FBI and the CIA, because one person was radicalized in this mosque a few years ago, and so we've been under surveillance. He said, in fact, I'm quite confident that our conversation is being listened to right now. I know my office has been bugged. He said, we know that telephones have been bugged. And this, of course, was uh, this was 2004, so about three years after 9-11. And he said, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you are a professor of family life. I believe that that's who you are. But because of what we've experienced, because of, of the way we've been treated by the authorities, I believe that most people in my congregation will assume that you are a CIA operative and that you're trying to infiltrate us. And I said, really? He said, oh, yes. I said, oh, okay. Well, I, thank you for letting me know. Uh, I, I'm really not CIA, but but I, I can certainly understand why there would be that impression. And sure enough, I called everybody on the list and nobody was willing to talk with me. They assumed that I was there under false pretenses. And I totally understand that. I, I'm really sad because I would have enjoyed you know, talking with someone. I had a chance to go to a different mosque in that community and they had not been under the same types of surveillance from uh, government entities. And so they didn't experience the same level of mistrust. And so I was able to interview some families there. One of the most memorable times that I attended a mosque was on Good Friday. I had been to a Catholic service, a morning mass on Good Friday. The night before on Thursday, I had been to a Passover service. And so on Good Friday, I attended a, a masjid and heard the, the sermon from the imam. And the entire sermon was on Jesus, who in Arabic is Esau. So in the Quran, uh, Jesus is, is referred to as Esau. And so the entire sermon was on respect for Jesus and teachings about Jesus that are in the Quran. And it was uh, surprising to me. I, like many non-Muslims, had not realized how much Jesus was discussed in the Quran. And in this case, you know, this probably 30-minute Friday sermon, you know, all about Jesus as a prophet. Of course, Muslims don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they do believe he was a great prophet. It was a fascinating experience for me, and I enjoyed teaching our students here at BYU Muslim teachings about Jesus. And most people, most Christians are surprised when they learn how much respect Muslims do have for Jesus as a great prophet, as a miracle worker, as a, a very important person. Like you have had some very positive experiences within Islamic communities during my time in Baton Rouge at LSU. There is a small masjid just off of campus where the Sunni Muslims worship. I had the, the opportunity to visit there 
more than once. There is also a Shia group that meets in town and they meet in the home, uh, the large home of a member of, of that congregation. Both groups treated me well. I learned a great deal from both. This is true for most religious minorities that we've interviewed, I think, Dave, that it's a little more difficult, understandably, to win trust. The boundaries are firmer of necessity because of persecutions. And so in many of those contexts, there I needed to be a little more patient with relationships building and trust developing, and was very fortunate to have Zara Al-Ghafli serve as an introducer, as a mutual friend. Two really positive experiences, one with a Shia congregation. I was honored with the opportunity to address them in a religious meeting about the importance of marriage and key lessons we have learned in social science about strengthening marriage. Marriage, of course, is, as we heard from some of our participants, is held not just as an important binding social contract, but your spouse is viewed as a gift from Allah himself. And so the nature of marriage is deeply revered, and I viewed that as one of my most positive experiences I've had over the years to talk about marriage. In terms of the Sunni mosque or masjid there, I had the honor of joining them for a Ramadan breaking of the fast. The fast begins before the sun rises and includes abstaining from both fluids and food during the daylight hours. And then during the month of Ramadan, it's typical for the faith community to come together as the sun is setting within the masjid to gather together to have prayer, to have worship services. And then, as you can imagine, everyone is happy to see the food. Uh, at that point in the day, and uh, often consists of of rice, of lamb, delicious, uh, in, in this case, largely Mediterranean food, wonderful spirit about it. And as we mentioned, conveying some of the participants' comments, it's almost an ebullience. There are many, many sacred rituals across the Abrahamic faiths. We've had the honor to learn more about those, to study them. I don't know that there's anything that compares with Ramadan. A full month of daylight fasting and around-the-clock dedication, and many, this was hinted at in one or two of the comments, but the turning of hearts that both parents and youth explained as they go through this discipline, this month-long discipline, it tends to turn the heart from things physical to things spiritual and timeless. One mother and father both explained that it seems to put things back into its proper order. And after that full month, taking a large chunk, 2.5% of the net worth, as some interpret, which for someone with a million dollar net worth is a staggering contribution in one fell swoop to the poor. It was something that made me want to go and do likewise, to think of ways to serve the poor, to think about social justice and, and charity and kindness. And I'm grateful for uh, both the Sunni and Shia Muslims 
who opened their places of worship and their homes to me and those who studied with me. I mentioned how I was greeted with and treated with great hospitality there in the mosque. I want to mention one other story about an experience in the mosque and then one experience in a home. That first day that I attended the mosque, so I interviewed the family in the morning, then attended services, went to the luncheon, then interviewed another family, and then I interviewed the imam for about an hour. And near the end of our interview, the call to prayer came, and the imam said, uh, I, I need to go and lead the prayer services. He said, there won't be as many people for this evening prayer as there were for the afternoon prayer, but would you like to join us? And I said, certainly. And he said, have you seen the washings or the ablutions that we do before we pray? And I said, no, I, I haven't. I did listen to a and kind of an instructional tape on the drive here, but I have not seen them. And he said, would you like to come with me and I will show you? I said, I'd be delighted. Thank you. So he brought me into the area where the washing takes place, and he performed the ablutions, which involve washing, starting with the top of the head, the head, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the ears, the arms, the legs, the feet. And it was it was a beautiful symbol of sort of physical cleaning but as you said in terms of ramadan being a it is a physical fast you you refrain from food but that has spiritual implications and so it was very clear as he was doing the washing though he was doing outward actions to wash his body he was clearly beginning to sort of focus in on spiritual matters and about to go and approach Allah in prayer. It was it was a beautiful and, and powerful thing and reminded me a little bit of some things of our washings in our temples in Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does. Also, I wanted to mention an interview where I interviewed a mom and a dad and four children. Three of them were daughters, and they were teenage and young adult daughters. And they were all wearing the hijab, the head covering. And they talked about how, because they were wearing this very clear symbol of their faith, it made them a target. And this was very soon after 9-11. My interviews were in the spring of 2002 in New England, uh, just a few months after 9-11. And there was still a very strong sense of mistrust and hostility among many Americans toward uh, many Muslims. Many Americans tried to understand and tried to make friends with Muslim people. There was a lot of effort of kind of interfaith activities where Muslims were invited to Christian congregations, Christians and Jews were invited to Muslim congregations. There's there a lot of that sort of activity going on. Nonetheless, a minority of Americans were expressing their anger by violent action toward Muslims. And so these uh, teenage gals and young adult gals describe having cars slow down and windows roll down and them threatened, having things thrown at them from passing cars, being stopped and threatened. They mentioned that a number of their Muslim friends actually began wearing the hijab after 9-11, that they hadn't been as observant before 9-11, but that something about the way that, that Muslims were being treated in America led people to be willing to sort of self-identify even more with their faith, even though they were well aware that it meant that they 
may well be a target. And in fact, many, many were treated in ways that were very unfortunate. And a number of people that we interviewed talked about feeling a sense of prejudice in terms of employment and neighbors and, and others not being willing to get to know them as individuals, but judging them based on their clothing, based on their religion alone, as if they themselves had committed violent acts. And it's understandable why people might think that way. We hope, of course, that the work that we're doing in the American Families of Faith Project might help to help those that want to learn more about other faiths come to know them and hopefully come to respect them. I could share one more positive recollection. One of my favorite interviews I ever had the chance to conduct was with a Muslim wife and husband in Pennsylvania on the eastern seaboard. And the mother, we have written about this in some of our other work. The mother, Angie, was, that's a pseudonym, but uh, we always call her Angie, was a convert to Islam. And it had a really challenging experience as a member of a Christian denomination. The specific denomination is not important here. But during her teenage years, her parents were unfaithful to each other and went through a divorce. At this point in time, Angie turned to her clergyman for some comfort and support and learned about the same time that he was, in fact, unfaithful to his wife had been. And Angie described this as a great loss of faith, as a faith crisis, a loss of faith both in religion and in family relationships, the ability of individuals to be faithful to one another. Heartbreaking. This had been about 20 years previous to my interview with her, but the scars certainly remained. As she talked about her husband, who I'll call Omar, she leaned forward. At this point, he was in the kitchen. They were taking turns kind of coming in and out of the kitchen to do meal preparation. But she said to me, I was terrified for years. I couldn't trust men. But when I met Omar and I saw the way that he treated his parents, the way he treated his siblings, the honor with which he conducted himself, I found a man in whom I can trust. I want you to know that I have no fear that he will ever be unfaithful to me. I know him. I know his religion. I know he lives his religion. It's difficult for me to convey the sense of confidence, trust, conviction that she had in her voice, and I didn't doubt her. Later in that interview, it was Angie's turn to be in the kitchen. And Omar was back with me one-on-one. -on -one. And he told me almost obliquely that at the place he worked, he was an engineer. There was a group of engineers that would gather each morning about 8.45 over by the second floor windows to watch the women employees come in from their cars. And they would make sexist and uh, objectifying comments about the women who walked in. And Omar said, I cannot join them. I will not join them. First, because Allah is watching. And he records those things in our book of life. I want to honor my, my wife. When she sees my book of life, 
after this world is over. I want it to be one of faithfulness. And I could see why Angie had such trust in this honorable husband. What I hope to convey to our listeners from that story is that within any faith, including our world faith of Christianity, there are negative and positive examples. Those who walk the walk and those who do not. The same is true within Islam. But we urge our listeners to take the time to take individuals and families one at a time and that among those who truly strive to walk this path of Islam, you will find people that are a joy to know, as we did with this project. Your experience reminds me of an experience I had at a conference I was asked to speak at a number of years ago uh, back east. It was a conference on uh, family relationships, family life, and I gave uh, a talk and discussed our research where we had interviewed you know, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and presented that research. And after the talk ended, we were in a kind of a ballroom at a hotel. And after the talk ended, a number of people came up to talk with me. So I, you know, I stood at the podium and, and talked with people, I don't know, eight or 10 people as they came. And the last person in the line of people to greet me was a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. And she explained to me that she was a doctoral student at a prestigious university and that she was uh, wanting to do similar types of research like what we had done. But I noticed that as she was the last person in line, that the room had cleared out and it was now just her and me in the room. And I knew that Muslims uh, had a very strict sense, you know, practicing Muslims have a strict sense of separation of the sexes. And one of those uh, principles that's taught in the Quran is that men and women who are not married to each other should not be alone in a room. And I now realized that, you know, as people had left, I realized that we were alone. And I said to her, would you like to step out into the foyer? I'm happy to talk with you as long as you like about your research. I'm happy to answer any questions. And she gave me this look of relief, like, thank you for understanding my people, my faith, my beliefs, my practices. Thank you for understanding that and for suggesting that we move out into a public place. And so we went out and sat in the lobby and talked for, I don't know, 45 minutes or so as she asked a variety of questions about you know, research methods and sampling and, and so forth. And so you know, we were then in a public place as you know, people walking, you know, walking past. And that helped me appreciate, you know, for those of us that are members of minority faiths that are often not understood and sometimes stereotyped and, and sometimes thought of as quite peculiar, quite strange, There is this appreciation when people know enough about your faith to have a sense for what matters to you and what you might be comfortable and uncomfortable with. And I certainly hope that the American Families of Faith Project and these podcasts might help listeners have a little bit more sense of some of those beliefs and and values that are shared by their neighbors and friends of other faiths that might help them to be more understanding of them. Well said. Doctors Dave Dollahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. 
The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.